Good morning and welcome to yet another episode of An Unqualified Guide to the Good Life, the show where we try to work out what it means to live well, this time perhaps with some qualifications to do so. <laughs> My name is Adam and, and with me as always is, is Nick Schmaler, but more importantly, we have with us a very special guest today, Dr. Matthias Schmaler, the Regional Director of UNRWA's Gaza Branch and also uh, Nick's dad. Hi Matthias, how are you doing today? And also Nick, how are you? Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I don't like that. I I still want to be introduced first. It doesn't matter about the prestige of the guest. Uh, Well, we're very fortunate to have um, a guest whose prestige so outshines yours. But um... (laughs) yeah, good start. Good start. As you as you noted, this is also an important moment for us because well this is um this marks for a start the end of our second season which is our first structured season so um that's that's important um (laughs) it's it's good to note that we have stuck to plans yeah uh, as we make them as we go (laughs) yeah yeah and um and also that um as you noted this is the first time that two people are recording in the same room for this podcast yeah we've only ever recorded remotely so you know take that covid <laughs> yeah you, you showed the virus <laughs> exactly exactly so um yeah so this this episode unlike all of our other uh, rigorously planned episodes will not not follow the same structure necessarily. Um, I think, as you will get to see when we go forward through seasons, our theme of virtue will be followed by other complementary themes to that. Um, but this guest episode that concludes our season on virtue will serve sort of as maybe an overview in some respects on uh, some, if not all, of the topics that we've discussed. Uh, an opportunity to reflect on some of those ideas and to see them embodied in practice, right? So um, it's just, I guess, quite convenient for our sakes that uh, my dad is a career humanitarian <laughs> and uh, it seemed like uh, a pretty approachable approachable person for our, our, our first qualified guest on this show, you know? Um, so, so... Yeah, very so fortunate. I mean, also, sense. it's an honor, but... So. <laughs> Also, it's an honor, very flattered, and um, it's not because no one else would. Probably <laughs> no, no, for me, for me, for me especially, this is a, it is a great honor to have you on the on the podcast, Matthias, and I'm I'm looking forward to the to to to, to whatever wisdom may may arise from our discussions. Yeah. I imagine rather one sided, yeah. but you never know. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we'll see, we'll see about that. Also, from now on, my moniker will be Nicholas, son of Matthias. Okay, that'll be that's sure. that's how you could introduce me from now on. Um, I I will. I won't do it for the next episode we record because that will come out before this one comes out, and that would be very confusing. But for all- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Well, um, we we haven't so far let our guest speak really. No, so it's I very think rude. We should we should get to that. Mm. And um, so I think the first thing is to specify actually um, what, what you do and um, what, uh, what that entails. So as Adam introduced you as the director of the regional branch of Gaza's uh, UNRWA operation, 
And um, I was wondering if you could actually just tell us a little bit of, of an overview of like what that role actually is and what the organization UNRWA actually does. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you both. It's really the, the honor is on my side being invited as an old person into a young hip podcast show. <laughs> um, yeah. Even young is questionable. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I guess old is not questionable <laughs> in my case. So back to your question of what I actually do in Gaza. So UNRWA was established more than 70 years ago when the United Nations, um, not as in the Secretariat, but the member states at the time decided to create two states in the Middle East. First, the state of Israel. And in order to do that, about 700,000 refugees were created, as it were. 700,000 Palestinians were asked to leave the land they were living on with a promise that they would get their own state and would be able to return to Palestine in, in the form of their own state. Now, in the meantime, UNRWA was created, as I said, more than 70 years ago to take care of their immediate needs until they could go back to their own state. Mm. So UNRWA stands for United Nations Relief and Works Agency. The idea was for a three-year period initially to provide essential relief work and, and support these people in a transition period. Now, here we are 70 years later. <laughs> Um, and still the second state has not been created and UNRWA's mandate is being renewed every three years, believe it or not, by the UN General Assembly, actually. Wow. Um, uh, now, in Gaza, the UN also decided, not UNRWA, but the member states, that we would keep registering the descendants of the original 700,000 Palestine refugees because uh, registration means that all those people will one day be entitled to live in the free state of Palestine. So meanwhile, we have more than five and a half million registered Palestine refugees, 1.4 million of which live in Gaza. That brings me a bit more directly to answering your question. <laughs> we run basic uh, government-like services for these 1.4 million people. The biggest service is schools. We run 277 schools for 285,000 children. Now, when sometimes when I say I am in charge of 13,000 employees, some people say that's typical UN big bureaucracy. But if you run 277 schools, you need teachers to do so. So, you know, yeah. 9,000 of our staff are education staff. The second biggest service is primary health care. We provide primary health care through 22 primary health care centers. And there's a million primary health care consultations each quarter that get conducted by our almost 1,000 health staff. Wow. And then maybe one more thing in terms of what I do. We also run a big relief program with the biggest part of which is food. As, as you may know, Gaza has been um, under blockade by the Israelis for almost 14 years. Uh, its economy is in free fall downwards. Uh, so people are poor, poverty is increasing, and we're providing to over a million people essential food. So that's not obviously like a government service. That's more like the Red Cross would do. Wow. So that's a long answer, but that's it. Yeah, that's very thorough. Thank you for that. Yeah, and um, and uh, well, actually, it sort of it sort of leads me nicely onto my my follow up to that, which was going to be what some of the most immediate challenges of 
the the organization as a whole are and then also of what your role are within that i mean i know for the organization as a whole you've already referred to the um the like the renewal of a mandate which is required every three years so maybe in some respects there is an existential challenge and the fact that um a short-term vision was implemented for something which is now over 70 to 80 years old so maybe transitioning to perhaps more long-term solutions and and perhaps the dangers there of upholding a refugee population and thereby maybe legitimating their uh, alienation and um and obviously i i also from conversations with you have other insights about about some challenges such as you know uh the the limitations um and obstacles of remaining politically neutral and um also of of where you get your fundraising in order to conduct these operations so maybe you could speak a little bit about about that um mm. so i mean i think you've touched on some of it nick um the the organization is in fundamental crisis for two reasons one is after 70 years there's increasing fatigue in the international community of having to deal with this issue now when i speak to member states about this i point the finger back at them you know the african proverb that says you point a finger at someone three fingers point back at you so don't point at unra point at yourselves for not creating the state you promised these people 70 years ago and you know i sincerely believe that like all people in the world um, the palestinians deserve to have a place they can call home and in my understanding they are basically now the only refugee community that doesn't have a country they can go to that they can call home all others the syrians the rohingya from burma etc they have a country they can in theory return to it may be very difficult at the moment but they have a country the palestinians don't so that's one big difference and and that's why with my other unra colleagues we keep arguing the solution is to find them uh, a just solution you know a place they can call home now the other part of the existential crisis for unra in, in on top of the politics of this is financial uh, when trump came to power four years ago he cut all funding from UNRWA. We, the United States has been our biggest funder for many, many decades. And we lost in, in one stroke of a pen with one, or one tweet, I should say, <laughs> 300, $350 million. And wow. it's linked to the first point. There's increasing fatigue. There's, of course, many other crises. Yemen, of course, uh, right now, COVID-19. So, you know, we, we are competing with many other equally worthy causes. And so something has to give that was implied in For your sure. question. For me, the something is a politically just solution. You know, the, the international community needs to force the Israelis and the Palestinians together back to the negotiating table to find a solution. Right. Regardless of what the outcome is. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm one of those, census. you know, most Palestinians will, if not all Palestinians will argue it's a two-state solution. We need our own state, although the longer this lasts, I think most people your age, young Palestinians who were born in Lebanon as a refugee and have never known Palestine themselves, will argue what we want is dignity and justice, mm. you know. 
I remember a young Palestinian, a bit younger than the two of you, in Lebanon when I was working there, once asking me where home is for me. And she knew that I had not lived in Germany as a German for more than 20 years or so. I'm married to a Kenyan. So she said, you know, what would you do if the German government withdrew your passport? because you're no longer living there, you're not paying taxes, you're not really German. And at first said, I said, you know, it doesn't matter, I'm, I'm an internationalist. <laughs> and, and she said, really? But your mother lives there, your siblings live there. If you had to apply for a visa to go visit your family, you wouldn't mind. And, you know, clever question. And I said, actually, I would mind. I, my, my German passport is part of my identity. I may never live in Germany again, but it is part of who I am. And she said, that's exactly how I feel. I want a passport that is part of my identity. I may never want to live in what I call Palestine, but I want the same as everyone else, mm. a place I can call home. Yeah. Do you do you think that that's a, a, a realistic scenario? Do you think it, it's likely uh, or that indeed that any solution is is a sort of on the horizon? As you say, there's the, lots of other issues that seem to be com competing um, at the moment. It's been going on for a long time. Uh, no, Adam, at the moment, it doesn't really look like it, if I'm honest, you mm. know, and, and it's hard to stay optimistic. Uh, when you look at the international political landscape and you know just the lack of momentum uh, behind finding a solution for the Palestinians and the Israelis. Having said that, there's two things I often say when I get asked this question. One is, you know, I, I lived in Berlin when the wall was up and right. if, if uh, in West Berlin, if six months before the wall came down, people would have said, this wall will start crumbling in six months, I would have said, come on, let's be real here. The Soviet empire is so established, etc., and the Cold War. And six months later, the, the wall opened up, you know. Um, so in a way, as a UN official, I get paid to stay optimistic. <laughs> I, as, as Nicholas knows, I grew up in South Africa in apartheid days. And as a 15-year-old, if someone would have said to me, the guy in prison that everyone calls a terrorist, including your own country, Germany, will one day walk out of prison and be the president of a free country, his name's Nelson Mandela, was Nelson Mandela, I would have similarly said, get real, you know, wake up to reality. Yeah. So we should never give up hope that things that seem impossible to, to solve will not one day get a solution. Mm -hmm. No, that's um, I've I, I mean I've heard you say that um and bring up that reason and I think something uh to the effect of you know things get darker before the day breaks the night is darkest before the day breaks I've heard you mention that as well and so you know sometimes and sometimes um desperation um can maybe provoke change because mm -hmm. something has to happen you know so um whether for better or worse, when, when uh, the, the situation of the peoples becomes desperate, I think um, something has to give because when people are, are, are not even fighting for things like just, you know, dignity and, and um, uh, international representation, but actually their lives um, and food and shelter, then, then um, the more extreme the situation, uh, perhaps the more extreme the measures in order to combat it, but certainly a rearrangement is necessary, right? Mm. Um, 
And, you know, you can imagine, I think two scenarios are possible. One is the positive one, that the Israelis and Palestinians will find a way of peacefully living together in the same space, whether it's two states, one state, one and a half states, doesn't matter, but peacefully coexisting. The other scenario is like the Aborigines in Australia or the Native Americans in, a, in the US, you know, eventually they, they were just... Uh, integrated in a very forceful and brutal manner into something new without much rights. That's right. also still a possibility. Yeah. 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 Which, um, and both, both come with their challenges and, yeah. and um, potential blind spots. And um, again, I mean, this, this issue obviously is, as you mentioned, has been going for 70 years and um, may well be a relevant issue for another 70 years after this and we could certainly talk about it for that long as well uh, <laughs> and and um for 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 the sake of 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 this podcast we won't we won't go too far into the politics themselves but um maybe more about your own personal experience of your role there and of the situation there and um already you i mean you've kind of um answered a lot of my questions already yeah. so, but um there are there are two things which i wanted to ask about the first was about the challenges of being um a foreigner in these circumstances and um and of, of you know having to embrace a cause which isn't um that of your peoples directly you know i mean i understand that you know injustice everywhere is a threat to justice everywhere and and if you if you genuinely have that humane perspective as i think we should all strive towards then then it's hard to turn a blind eye and to feel uninvolved by anyone's suffering but um regardless of that being the case we live in the world that we do and so you're a german working in this environment um so what does what does you know what challenges come from that uh, both internally and um as projected onto you and then also maybe there, this is also a connected question. How do you, um, as you said, you paid to remain optimistic. How do you do that on a day-to-day -day basis on the ground, particularly because doing a role um, like, uh, like you are and being involved in a humanitarian operation often exposes you to a tremendous amount of suffering, you know, perhaps more so than the average person, like say Adam or myself, who, who live in relatively calm environments, you know. Yeah, I, where we can read about these things, but are not necessarily directly exposed to them. So, yeah, yeah how do you, I, how does, how does your foreignness affect your interaction with where you are, and and how do you remain positive? In that I'm very space? interested in, in in particularly remaining positive because Sorry, I, Adam, you're saying. I, I, yeah, I, I sometimes struggle to stay optimistic sitting here in Oxford, <laughs> just reading the news, and so, so I can't imagine what it's like to be in in Gaza and have to do the <laughs> same. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean. You know, that's, um, I don't know how much time have we got. <laughs> Those are questions for an entire seminar. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but you know, maybe to start with, in a sense, and this may surprise you both, the easier one, which is how does one keep one's motivation in such a situation? Um, what, what we haven't talked about is that 95% of our staff, the 13,000 almost I mentioned in Gaza, are Palestinians themselves. In a way, UNRWA is a refugee agency run by refugees. Oh. If it weren't for the Palestinians themselves, all our teachers are Palestinians, all our doctors and nurses are Palestinians, and 95 
of more than 90% of them Palestine refugees themselves. So they are serving their own community. And part of my motivation is working with a fantastic bunch of people. You know, really, um, there's, there's, you will always find a few rotten apples in the mix, but a majority of people are incredibly committed, incredibly professional, really dedicated to making the best of miserable circumstances for their people. And that's motivational. You know, I mm. sometimes say if I get a bit down, let me go and visit a school. Because of course, if you visit a school and you see young girls and boys who, who remain themselves optimistic despite it all, who are grateful they're getting an education that gives them some hope and some chance for the future. Um, you know, that's in itself motivation. Right. So right. in that sense, UNRWA is not a typical UN agency advising governments. That's mostly what the UN does. We rerun services directly. Um, uh, and and you know Gaza then and we've seen this all over the world um, in in the most desperate situation sometimes the downtrodden and poor have amazing amazing life energy and positiveness you know in the worst slums you will see incredible creativity and innovation to make things better and I come across this all the time I one thing I, I think I've mentioned to you Nicholas is I once went to see a play an Arabic version of Hamlet Shakespeare's Hamlet wow. in the middle of Gaza you know and that was just in, an incredible experience there's strawberry farms the best strawberries I've eaten are in Gaza uh -huh. you know, there's a school for for circus and they they, yeah. they enter. so you know that's <laughs> not the main part of day-to-day -day life but you find these nuggets all the time that are part of inspiration now on your first question you know what's it like to be a german in the middle of palestinian so among the thirteen thousand staff we have about nine full-time international staff so it's a very small group and wow. i have to say the majority of palestinians i work with think it's right that as a un agency some of the leadership positions are international staff, uh, so they don't have an in-principle problem with that. And they also think, given the toxic environment, the bad relations with the Israelis, but also the very tense relations among some of the Palestinian parties, yeah. that sometimes it's just really good to have a more neutral person, especially when it comes to deciding on money matters, you know. And yeah. that's not to say that Palestinians can't be neutral and cannot handle money responsibly, but but the UN has a policy that I cannot be a senior UN person in Germany as a German. They think it's right, right, right. That, okay. that senior leadership positions in a country working for the UN are, are you know, staffed by people from outside. Okay. So that's that actually country. explicit it's, policy. That's explicit policy. Okay. Yeah. Because without that information, I mean, maybe with that information still, it can feel like a con controversial move. Particularly oh, yeah. where the majority of yeah. the, the Gaza operation, for instance, yeah. is occupied by Palestinians, yeah. except for the most yeah. senior positions. Oh, and you know, I said there's two reactions. There's a minority that feels this is a form of neocolonialism and we should go and hand it over to Palestinians. You know, now, if we were to do, and I have some sympathy for that, but if we were to do that, we have many detractors on the Israeli, the American, and, so, and in other countries also. They would then say, well, this is not a UN agency anymore. This is a Palestinian agency. So, right. you know, we, I, I think as long as it is a UN agency, there needs to be a, a few international staff to maintain the image of an international global agency. Yeah.
but it's it is problematic and sensitive that's for sure hmm. that makes sense um do you do you then feel like this you say minority set of detractors who might uh, attribute that to neocolonialism do you think that that's something which is relevant and pervasive more broadly within the humanitarian sector and do you, is it something that you've come across yourself or have had to you know confront within yourself as it been leveled at you like what's yeah, what is the dynamic of that um, yeah, very to much so i think for a couple of years now the discussion in international humanitarian and development circles has been very much about localization mm-hmm. uh, you know and local actors i think it's now common common uh, a common view that the best solutions for for humanitarian challenges and developmental ones are uh, created and implemented by people who it concerns you know and that the best organizations are usually those that are close as close as possible to the communities they serve and you know that's why i stressed earlier that unra in a sense meets some of that because we our teachers are all palestinians speaking to their own students in their own language knowing their own culture etc i think what would what i would find much more problematic is if a majority of our teachers were international right. you know that would be totally inappropriate now you would if you went into that deeper and if you looked at oxfam the international red cross etc there's a lot of critique from local organizations that despite you know many of them will criticize the international agencies for paying lip service to the idea of local empowerment the role of local actors and at the end of the day not transferring enough resources and enough authority mm. to those local actors that remains very much a sensitive a real and an important discussion all over the place so yes you're right in asking those questions also about unra they they are happening in the larger space about this very issue and i think the future is going to be less and less internationally managed operations and more and more local actors running taking matters into their own hands okay right but um in a sense the international operations would try and help those transitions to happen um yeah. i mean buzzwords are empowerment and capacity building right that's exactly what and i genuinely think many international colleagues in from other un and other international organizations are committed mm-hmm. to working themselves out of a job by by empowering and capacitating if that's an english word local yeah. actors and people yeah Yeah, for sure. That's um that's very encouraging. It's it's interesting that you mentioned Oxfam um a moment ago there because because Nick and I have, have previously spoken about the um the sort of scandal that racked them a few years ago. I wonder if that was a if that was a sort of turning point in how in how humanitarian organizations interact with local communities or if sort of it was a the the tide had been turning for a while and and that sort of pushed it to the forefront a little bit or Yeah, I mean I th- I don't think we are through that crisis yet as a sector that was triggered in some way by the Oxfam but there were also other agencies you will remember the main issue at the end of the day there was sexual exploitation yeah. so international staff abusing both local staff of those organizations and the UN has had its fair share of this by the way unfortunately mm. so I I think since a couple of years there is much 
heightened awareness and sensitivity to the issue of exploitative relationships, not least in a sexual um, way. Um, and, and, you know, much has been done to set up proper whistleblowing systems to protect whistleblowers who, who expose this, to make sure that all staff, whether local or international, because of course there's also local staff exploiting their own people um, in sexual and other ways. So there's a lot in terms of code of conduct work that everyone has to sign up to. There's a lot of work around disciplinary measures, you know, investigations and disciplinary measures. But I think not but and I think there's no doubt that overall the sector do, took a deep hit in in terms of credibility. You know, and it, it's really right. not just Oxfam. Oxfam was just unlucky in a way that they were particularly exposed. But it's across the sector and I think it's unfinished business. We we continuously need to remind ourselves of the importance and this has nothing to do with international national it's just what is decent human behavior yeah. uh, you know in schools right. when you deal with vulnerable people what what do you need to adhere to in terms of of protective behavior to those who are weak and vulnerable in your care yeah, yeah that makes sense um does that does that answer your question Emily? Yeah. Yeah. uh yeah yeah definitely um, it's a very interesting perspective well, I think um, one of the things which, which, um, like you said, sort of in passing just now, was about working yourself out of a job in order to, um, in order to, you know, facilitate the uh, operation of uh, humanitarian effort um, and care at local levels. And so, yeah, is there is there? Do you have any thoughts on on? what it means to be in roles that you um, ultimately would see as successful if there was no longer a need for them. And, um, and, and yeah, what, what that, whether that is something that resonates through the sector as a whole, whether that's something which it struggles to um, grapple with, because in a sense, like the, 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 the sector, the humanitarian sector is itself a big employer. It, it, um, it's a big um, unifier of nations in some senses. And, um, you know, offers a mm. career opportunities to certain people. And so is there, is there sometimes a pushback to that? And is there basically room for exploitation in the sense that dependency might benefit the aid giver more than the receiver, um, in the long term? Look, I, I think I would lie or not be truthful if, if I said that this is not also about having a job and an income, you know, so there is conflicting emotions, to be honest. I think no one in this business can claim they are just there for altruistic reasons. You know, there are some people who are incredibly selfless in the way they serve, but those are more volunteers who just give up everything and live in some community with basically not, not much and definitely not an income. You know, I, I live in those terms a very comfortable life. A UN senior manager is paid, is paid a good salary. So I don't need to worry about that. But back to your question of where, where does this go into the future? There's two thoughts that may be of interest for both of you. One is you will have heard the notion of act locally, think globally. Mm. I, I think it is really important that that uh, as we empower uh, and as we make sure that the action, the services, the humanitarian response happens locally and is run and managed and led by locals, 
there is still a need for staying connected globally. You know? And that the, the second thought linked to that is, I sincerely believe that today's problems, and maybe it's always been the case, but today's problems are so connected yeah. that no country can go it alone. You know, you could say, you know, in a sense like Trump, you know, at the end of the day, I'm paid to run my country and it's about my country. The localization agenda, in a sense, is that. Huh? Mm. Um, but but then I think the problems are too complex to be solved by people and countries alone. And right. so as long mm. as we have things like climate change, as long as we have massive refugee and migration issues, that requires countries and organizations and to, to work together. So for me, there, into the future, there will always be have to be a small group of people that works on global policy, that works on global knowledge sharing. You know, sometimes solutions are found in the Pacific, that island countries that could also work in the Indian Ocean yeah. island countries. And mm -hmm. so why, why waste effort and not learn from each other? You know, so I think international staff will increasingly be in roles of policy making, of sharing knowledge, of facilitating learning and capacity building. And, you know, international means international from all parts of the globe. Whereas the actual service delivery will be local by the locals, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. So, you know, I think there will always be space for for international stuff but in our overall numbers i think increasingly less and that's a good direction fortunately i'm retiring in a couple of years <laughs> <laughs> no but on a serious note i think that is really a good thing and you know i've i've often said in the unra context in gaza i'd love to be the last director in gaza not because we run out of money but because the Palestinians no longer need UNRWA because they're right. their own state, you know. So genuinely, I think many people like myself would find that very rewarding yeah. if they can point to a situation where they can say, I'm leaving because I'm no longer needed. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. In the end, it's it's just, it's the fulfillment of yeah. what you are there to do um, as an individual or as an organization. And um, it, with regards to locality and the operations of people on the ground at that local level. Uh, can you, do you have any thoughts on whether um, perhaps say entrepreneurship or, or charity are better suited to, for instance, more local um, pursuits? So Adam and I did a podcast a few weeks ago about social entrepreneurship and um, uh, you know, in a sense, I, I think it helped us to, to, sort of uh, strip the connotations of negativity and demonization that are often, um, you know, associated with, say, the, the private sector, for instance, even if it's not, you know, big corporate, but on a smaller scale. Um, and I mean, you know, for instance, we've seen, we've seen what the corporate world can do, like with Pfizer and this vaccine. Um, but uh, yeah, at a more local level, um, whether, whether the idea of charity will remain as relevant if we're empowering these people or whether the notion of empowerment is not to pass on the burden of charity but rather to introduce the idea of entrepreneurship um, and I wonder whether you have some thoughts on that. Just before I lose it Nicholas let me just share one thought around sectors private versus right. government versus mm -hmm. NGOs you know as we discussed when we touched on Oxfam I think bad behavior is not 
the prerogative of one sector. You know, and I think there was a time when humanitarians thought the private sector is cutthroat business and people must be bad who work there. I think we're beyond that. You know, we've seen our fair share of scandals in the private sector, corruption-wise, etc. And we've seen now our fair share of bad behavior in the humanitarian sector and amongst governments. Yeah, so I really think wherever people work, <laughs> you will find the good and the bad and the ugly. Yeah. That's not limited to one sector. And now, secondly, then back to your question, I sincerely believe, just as I talked about interconnectedness of issues requiring multilateral solutions, I also think it is about working together across sectors. You know, so what we can learn in the humanitarian and development world from the private sector is accountability for resources. You know, I think you just, you go under in the private sector if you don't administer or, you know, have proper stewardship of the resources you have. Mm -hmm. And we've had to learn that the painful way in, in the humanitarian world. And indeed entrepreneurship. I really think you're absolutely right that charity should happen less and less. You know, I think there will always be situations if, if the house of our neighbors burns down, why not be charitable and help them yeah, through a sure. few days of doom and gloom? You know, so I think there will always be situations when a tsunami hits, when an earthquake hits, where traditional charity will have its place for a time limited period, you know, and, I mean, in terms of just sharing resources and making sure those who've had their, you know, real bad luck if, or a stroke of fate, bad sort of fate, need to be supported. But if you are looking for sustainable longer term solutions, it's about entrepreneurship. I, I think you're absolutely right that um, lo the local empowerment agenda goes hand in hand with entrepreneurship. It's future solutions, sustainable solutions are about entrepreneurial rather than charity solutions. Mm. Mm. Well, okay, that um, confirms my suspicions. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I have um, actually so, sort of on that note, because it takes us there quite nicely. Do you have any, um, do you feel like this maybe this generation of which Adam and I are part um, and, and you know, the generations after us, do you feel like in this day and age there are um, problems specific to it that we were going to have to confront that... Um, maybe are, are, are new to us. And I mean, you know, I suppose in a sense, it's sort of asking what, what, um, what you think the, the pressing concerns are now where charity is still most needed, um, where the sector is still most needed and whether or not that has shifted across the decades. Mm. You know, it's a very broad question. I know. Um, but maybe have some thoughts to that effect. I mean, you know, I, I think I would go as far as saying charity is basically, more often than not needed locally, if there's a fire and earthquake, etc., there will always be situations like the Indian Ocean tsunami a decade or so ago, where the local resources will just not be there, and there's an, an international solidarity effort needed. Um, but but you know, at the end of the day, I think charity is about helping the neighbor rather than 
big global actions. Mm -hmm. uh, in global terms, if I heard your question correctly, what are the challenges of today? I think the, the two or three that are for me of major importance are number one, climate change. You know, I really think if we do not take that serious and work together as a globe on solutions that limit the damage and possibly turn it around, we will be doomed as a planet in the long run or medium run even. I think migration, mm. people moving from very desperate situations, you know, and there's a lot of, we make the mistake often of thinking migration itself, being a refugee when you're forced out is bad per se. Migration, you know, I'm a migrant in a sense. We're all migrants often when we work outside our own country. A migration per se is not bad, mm. but there are, you know, challenges coming out of migration, especially if it's linked to people fleeing from circumstances that are beyond their control. And I think that will require attention. You know, look at what's happening all the time in the Mediterranean Sea with people, desperate people trying to get to, to, to better places. You know, in their perception, and I think that requires attention in the, on the global scale. And then, maybe a third and final point is linked to what we said earlier. I really think we are in a phase where we need to rethink what does democracy mean. Right. You know, I, I think linked to the localization agenda, it cannot mean everyone does things alone, and it cannot mean that it, the, the, at the end of the day, it's about, you know, the presidents we currently still have in the US, in Brazil, in Russia, in China, in autocratic ways disempowering their own people. I, I really think it's not just about, in other words, material needs. Uh, it is. It is also about you know idealistic needs. Mm. We need to redefine what dignity and justice means for each and every one of the citizens of right. this globe. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. So climate change, um, migration, and um, democracy, yeah. or the democratic values, and um, and, and reinterpreting them. Yeah. You know, I think we've yeah. seen enough, including currently in the U.S. That we can't just say what's worked for decades is 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 still working. There's a lot of redefinition needed. Yeah, it's it's interesting mm. that you you picked up on these three uh, and and makes me think of what you said earlier in the podcast, which is that um, you know these these issues all all sort of run into each other, right? I mean, climate change. Uh, there are in in sort of the Western United States now. There have been uh, mi migrants from internal migrants from forest fires, and migration can stoke populist tendencies and and which lead to damaging environmental measures and and, and all of these things it's all all very uh, interwoven and, and complicated i guess yeah yeah nice point actually um, yeah i think um with regards to that maybe the one thing that i would add also which i guess makes it particular um to these circumstances is also um the still as yet kind of undefined uh, impact of technology uh, in, mm. in, all diff in what with regards to all three of these factors and also to their solutions and um, to, to yeah how we communicate with one another and go forward but um, that's that's nice actually it paints a nice picture of um, the ways in which we go forward I want to go back a little bit now actually and um, Maybe this is more for a personal interest of mine, but um, as you mentioned earlier, you were in um, 
South Africa during apartheid times. And now obviously this is not um, a visual podcast, but as my father mentioned, he's German and my mother is Kenyan, uh, which means I'm mixed race and my father is the white half of that mix. And um, you were in uh, South Africa as uh, the son of a um, missionary. So, you know, in a way you, you had a missionary and then a humanitarian and now a podcaster and we're all doing a bit <laughs> to contribute to humanity. And, uh, and, um, you know, you've often spoke to me about, um, the positive ideas that you were able to take from watching the, um, the symbolic, if nothing else, emancipation of, of uh, South Africa from that oppressive regime. And, um, I, I, you know, I wanted to know whether you, you, what, what that experience of was like, um, to be there on, um, missionary terms, because in a sense, it puts you apart from both of those communities, um, as well as making you a part of both the white and black communities and, um, how important your racialization was in that upbringing, you know, um, or the, I mean, again, you are, you're trying to cram many <laughs> seminars into less than an hour. Welcome, welcome to, our, welcome to our podcast. <laughs> and maybe that is our modern age, isn't it? You, we don't have time to spend on all these big questions. No, but what went through my mind, Nicholas, as you were saying or asking that, is I am remembering that my father once told me that after the 1977 uprising in Soweto, a, a black ghetto just outside of Johannesburg, one of the main towns in South Africa, his, his black South African friends and colleagues were telling him, the time has come for you to go. This is our issue now. Oh. Maybe it's always been, you know, we've appreciated what you have done with and for us over years. No one will ever take away from that. But there comes a time, and it fits with what we were discussing earlier in terms of localization agenda, that um, there one, one has to realize when, when you have reached a point where you're making someone else's problem your problem, and you shouldn't. You should you should withdraw and give the space to someone else. We we cannot be serious about empowerment and localization if we don't withdraw at some point very consciously. And on, and I think I would have struggled much more with my own identity also as a white person if my parents had decided to stay, mm-hmm. because I know quite a few white young South African well at the time young now no longer so young for who who have struggled with their identity precisely over this question and especially if they didn't if they weren't originally south african yeah. you know i mean originally black will say no white was originally south african but you know after many generations you can maybe legitimately claim you are an, a citizen of that country and for quite a few i think this has had enormous uh, psychological issues. Now, another thing that I remember from my father is he at one point said to me he felt he was accepted in South Africa by his black South African colleagues and friends when he could criticize them without them accusing him of being a racist. Hmm. That's interesting. I think in race relations, we need to move to, to, and you know, that's easy for me to say as a white person, but I think the future is not that we all withdraw into our own space and don't interact with each other. I think we need to interact with each other in such a way that each side feels it's respected. 
right and not being treated as a you know a subclass or right. with less value and you know i think when i talk to people who knew my father from the time in south africa that's what stands out they respect they felt he respected them he wasn't talking mm. to them mm. at the end of the day as a white missionary he was talking to them as an equal who was willing to take knocks on the chin himself right Okay, that's so it's all a bit philosophical so, for sure. But I mean, uh, you know, in a sense, it, it's sort of uh, so long as you, you're not leading with that premise, it doesn't yeah. necessarily have to define the relationship of what you're doing, even if it might um, have some role in shaping the culture and the socioeconomic environment that you're in. And um, this notion of criticism, kind of at the root of respect and trust, mm. is a is a nice one. Mm. Um, as well and yeah thank you for yeah. answering that actually and That's then as awesome. another element i think of it as is a white person i don't know if, if adam relates to this also we we you know not all white people are grew up in privileged circumstances but many did including myself mm. and i think another part that will make race relations work is if whites acknowledge privilege yeah i think what i've often felt with with uh, you know including my own wife if you don't acknowledge that you've had privileges that she in this case hasn't had it makes it more difficult to build a solid relationship and a trust for one. yeah that's that's very interesting that's uh and yeah a, a, a great a great uh, sentiment i think um, yeah absolutely um well i know we've we've covered a lot thus far and um I, I i have personally one more question i don't know if adam you have anything uh i you I, to bring up. I do but you you go first uh, I, i'd like to conclude okay you. in that case <laughs> I, I i will um i, I was wondering matthias you know this is we, we've talked about a lot of a lot of big issues um today as you say several seminars in one in one fairly short episode um but uh, you you be you know interacted with with sort of um people in Gaza who who maybe don't have the best circumstances and and people within the United Nations this di diplomacy sector that that have you know immense privileges and, and you've experienced privilege yourself uh, among all these different walks of life what what would you say are, are some of the, the key ingredients of of the good life as it were <laughs> I know that's a very big question to, <laughs> to throw right at the end but are there any common common themes when you see people who, who appear to be happy and, and living living life well yeah. um, among these different groups of people? I mean, you know, that's a, that is a difficult one to answer. Yeah. I would say, and I don't don't mean this to sound in any way glibly. I I think for most people, certainly for me, part of happiness is doing something that is that one feels is meaningful. You know, and that doesn't mm. need to be helping someone else. Uh, you know, it could be producing something that is useful for someone else. Right. You, know? Mm. you know, so I'm not I'm not defending the old concept of charity. You know that you can only be happy if you're a charitable person. No, but I think each person, each individual, has to define for him or herself what what is what is meaningful ways of of working, of living, of spending your time. You know, and I, I artists. 
I can, I'm not an artistic person, but I can, you know, an artist doesn't necessarily help anyone, doesn't it? Yeah. Doesn't well, he or she? And, but some will, but, you know, it's it's, for me, it illustrates that an artist it will be happy, I think, if they feel they're producing art mm. that is right. relevant, that is meaningful, whatever term they will use to describe mm. that. It's not about utility, in other words. It's about a deeper sense of fulfillment. So that's an element. I think, as I implied this earlier also, I, you know, we live in a world that is very materially driven. And I'm not sure one can be um, entirely happy if you don't have the basic needs in of life covered, you know, food, shelter, clothing. Um, so, you know, I've I've been fortunate so far that I've always had a stable income, and and I think that is part of happiness in the kind of world in which we live. Mm. And I think that's why many people in very rich societies are not necessarily happy because they they don't have the resources it takes to survive in a meaningful way in those kinds of societies. So there is, what I'm trying to say with this is, is there is there's not just an emotional aspect to feeling happy, there's also a material one, I think, at least speaking for myself, if I'm honest. Mm. So I don't know, Adam, if that is, uh, no, that's great. I, I wasn't an answer um, to your question. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I imagine everyone has a different answer, but 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 from from that, uh, that sounds yeah, very very sensible. I mean, something else to add maybe is I've also had the privilege to be able to travel to work in very different places, uh, ranging from Sudan to Ethiopia to now Gaza, Le- Lebanon, India for a while, and I think it's incredibly rewarding and fulfilling to meet people from other cultures and interact with them, live with them. So for me, that's part of happiness too, being able to discover difference and, right. you know, and enjoy different food, different music. Yeah, yeah variety and yeah, exposure. That makes sense. That makes sense. It's a pretty good definition. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. We've had so far. <laughs> Well, is, well, as, we, as we said at the um, top, this is the first qualified guide yeah. to the good life. So, <laughs> my um, my my uh, question was um, with regards to all of this, and I mean, you sort of answered it actually by talking about this uh, this this question now of Adams, but um, was you know how 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 do you switch off? You know how do you you know? And we also spoke about the 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 optimism and how to maintain that. But um, how do you allow yourself not to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders um, when you have to do that for a living, you know, um, the rest of the time? How do you, how do you keep that um, balance? Mm. Do you keep that as a balance? I mean, I, if I'm honest, that's something I at times struggle with, you know, and I think you know from your mother, Nicholas, that she feels I've become too absorbed uh, in Gaza by the context and the people there, and uh, that I at times don't see anything else. So I think it is, and that's probably correct criticism. What I think is important is that if one has jobs like I do, one does need to take time off and try to switch off. You know, And I, I think over the three years I've been in Gaza now, amazingly, I've, I've managed to, to learn how to do that. You know, the last three weeks now here in Geneva with the family, I think by and large, I've, 
I, I monitor my email. You know, if you're in charge of 13,000 staff, you can never completely switch off. But, but I've managed not to engage and respond to email, etc. You know, there's been maybe two in three weeks that I felt I did need to respond to, but otherwise I've really stepped back. You know? So that's one element. It's, it's one does need. And, but that for someone like me, who likes to be engaged and involved, it's a conscious effort to actually step back and to say, you know, mm. you just really do not have to answer that particular email or respond to that call. And then I think it's also about doing stuff that's completely different. Huh? So reading, watching mindless television shows, <laughs> I can't tell you which ones. <laughs> um, but, uh, well, my, as your mother knows, she makes fun of me that I watch CSI <laughs> crime series uh, or the German Tatort, which yeah. is like a German version of CSI. You know, I think one, if you have a high pressure job or responsibility, I think you, the way to stay balanced is to do something completely different every yeah. once in a while. And then final point, and maybe that's what I should have started with, is people. Mm, right. it, it may sound like a bit like an old cliche, but having, you know, I, I'd like to think with all the challenges that we've had, me being away so much, you know, our family has basically stayed a family and and so that that's part of balance being able to mm. have people relationships whether it's family friends you know spouses partners yeah yeah mm. yeah no that, that that makes sense i like the idea of switching off or allowing yourself to be consumed by something else for a while you know um and uh and that that doesn't have to be anything with any value other than just to allow you not to think about that other thing and just for you to be, you know, um, functioning in a different sense. Um, yeah, that's, that's nice. Uh, Adam, do you have any, any other questions? Um, no, uh, no, that's give, given, give me a, I've actually been taking notes this whole time. I, I don't know if you've seen, but it's, it's been very interesting. Yeah, uh, Matthias, and thank you so much for all yeah. of your, your insights. It's all very interesting. Thank you again. It's been a very pleasurable conversation. You know, it's it's some. Um, I sometimes say this to journalists. I like talking to journalists because it forces me to reflect. Mm. It's part of stepping yeah. back and uh, having to explain what sometimes seems like a complex reality uh, in reality to someone else is 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 also a way of coping and staying mm. balanced. Mm. Mm-hmm. Especially if those people then think that you're yeah. talking some sense. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, I, I like that you said reflection because that definitely is something Adam has been trying to um, pr- promote or push forward as um, yeah. a valuable tool for yeah for I, I, I feel navigating we, life. We come, from, we come to that a lot, um, especially in this past season, which is quite theory heavy in terms of the in terms of the good life reflection of what comes up time and time again yeah um so i'm, I'm glad to yeah. hear that this this helps with that at least in some way for sure for sure and um yeah no so so yeah a, a lovely conversation thank you for um being a part of that it was interesting to hear about uh, gaza in its current day and of the evolution of UNRWA um and how it came to to be and how it's doing now and what the challenges are at a personal level and um what what perhaps some of the outlooks of the future might be whether on the on the bleaker side or on the much more optimistic one and it was interesting to hear about like the potential development of of the sector as a whole right or um 
for the sector to be um, you know superseded by something something else something entirely um, different with you know international policy making at a global level and and um, maybe you know charity and business at a um, and politics at a more local level um, in order to in order to address the issues that face us and, and what those are and and then also to have briefly gone back to South Africa yeah. <laughs> and to have your experience about um, Germany as well and um, and yeah and, and and what that's meant for um, you know holding values and and applying them and and you know turning off at, at the end of the day and and all these things so definitely that's um, a lot to pack in I think yeah as Adam has said this might be the first time we have substance. <laughs> I'm sure it's not. <laughs> but uh, there's, certainly, there's, there's, certainly, there's certainly a lot of it. And, um, well, one of the ways in which we like to um, turn turn off from the rigors of podcasting is um, and, and the serious topics that we cover therein is to um, give ourselves palate cleansers at the end of each episode so that we may no longer carry the burden of the weight on our shoulders of the weight of the world on our shoulders um after an episode so adam if you do you have a fun fact that you would like to conclude this episode with i, I do have a fun fact uh, and this comes hot off off the press from another uh podcast which is dedicated to fun facts that's no such thing as a fish um i'm sure they could do with the shout out um they uh and, and I, I learned on this they were talking about wormwood which is the the main ingredient in absinthe which um often reported to to be hallucinogenic um it is but not in the quantities which it is present in in absinthe it's a bit of a mis misconception but the russian word for wormwood is uh, chernobyl and as it turns out, Chernobyl, the, the Ukrainian town, which uh, famously had a nuclear meltdown, is named for um, the wormwood, which grows abun or grew abundantly in the surrounding area. Incredible. That's a uh, yeah, neat, neat little fact. Neat little fact, yeah. Um, are you taking us back yeah. underwater, so Nicholas, with, with, a, with a fact? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to bring up my note for this one. So um, in order to carry my theme of exploring the oceans which i hope one day to visit <laughs> i um i wanted to talk about the fact that a few weeks ago or it will have been about a month by the time this comes out um the uh schmidt ocean institute in australia which um regularly sends these underwater robots to explore uncharted deep water territory and the bottom of the ocean found um a creature which they had been familiar with previously called the Siphonophore, mm -hmm. which um, is one of the longest sea creatures and was thought to be able to go up to 10 meters long. Wow. Um, they found a, a new one towards the bottom of the ocean in, in by Western Australia that was 150 feet long, which is estimated to be about 46 meters. That's very long. That's a very long animal. It's a very long creature. And uh, basically these, um, so what's interesting is that it's a compound creature. It's made out of, made up of a, a multiplicity of little clones called zooids, um, which kind of bandy together and um, with their huh. length and light in the deep water attract a prey basically. Wow. And so they use this as a hunting technique, um, but they've basically formed this massive chain which technically is one organism composed of a variety of more simple organisms. Um, wow. Kind of like, like corals bandy together, for instance. Um, but yeah, 40, 46, 46 meters long. So, so as, if, as if the ocean 
uh, wasn't scary enough. So wait, can each Zooid live independently, or...? I think they, I think they bandy together. Yeah. Wow. Uh-huh. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. But there are, I think there are, yeah, they belong to a fat, like a, a, a kind of a, a, a family. Um, and there are examples of Zoods that can live. Um, I don't know if you would refer to them as Zoods though, but they can live, um, independently. And then of these like conglomerates that kind of depend on each other. Hmm. Awesome. That's, that's super cool. Yeah. There you go. Thank um, you. Do you have a fun fact? Well, about it's to, not to as profound with? as those that both of you have mentioned. Well, we'll forgive you. <laughs> no, I was saying to Nicholas earlier, Adam, when he asked me this, the only thing I could think of is that um, our family name, Schmale, in Arabic is pronounced by some Schmael. Uh-huh. And I remember in Lebanon, my assistant there one day came to me and said a Lebanese family had called them up because their name is Shmael and they were delighted to find out that the new UNRWA director in Lebanon was a Lebanese <laughs> and they were quite, uh, keen to meet this uh, Lebanese person who showed up miraculously. Now in, in, in Arabic Shmael means north so their family name had something to do with coming from the north. In German, I don't know if you know this Nick, uh, uh, Schmale it means narrow or lean so probably at some point we either had very lean people in our right. Family like you, uh, or we lived along a, a narrow road or something. So you know, it's oh, fascinating wow. that both names have something to do with surroundings. Yeah, but of course they are they have completely different meanings. And I assure you, we have no, to the best of my knowledge, Arabic blood in our. <laughs> but the Lebanese were disappointed. To find <laughs> they were disappointed. Yeah. That's uh, that's incredible. That's the what that's what a, what a fun um what a fun story um. Well, um, and unless you unless you have, have anything else, uh, Nick or, or Matthias, I think that probably um, about wraps it up for for for, for this morning. Um, Nick, thank you so much for potting with me as always, and, and Matthias, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. It's been it's been really great to um, to to hear hear you talk and get get your your insight on things. Thank you both, and all the best for the third season. I guess. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Um, And so, uh, dear listener, thank you too for listening, and with love and rage, goodbye.